0: Welcome as we take another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot, who called us to live to a higher standard each day, not satisfied with just a little religion as a shallow substitute for what God wants for us. As our series continues in the coming weeks, we'll hear from family, friends, and others influenced by Elizabeth's life and her message. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Well, we're in the story of Gladys Aylward, an interesting story indeed. Our two uh, programs are parts three and four of this 10-part series on missionary Gladys Aylward on a boat to Japan. Imagine trying to do great things, but having a very humble beginning. Someone might say that your greatest experience as far as jobs was knowing how to dust. We'll hear about a mysterious follower about a post-midnight encounter, and about a passport that needed to be reclaimed. Also coming up, two great sorrows of Gladys Aylward and the blessings of those sorrows, the blessings of being short, about an important friendship, and more. Well, as we're hearing the story of Gladys Aylward's memories, We'll hear a bit of uh, Jean Hamilton's memories when it comes to Elizabeth and how she was helping during times of trouble in Jean's life and about the significance of a slice of pear. Also, we'll hear about how Elizabeth, though we talk about her here on this uh, program, she didn't want to be treated as a celebrity. That coming up later. So let's begin with part three of our 10 part series on Gladys Aylward. It's called On a Boat to Japan. You are loved with an
1: everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend Elizabeth Elliott, continuing the riveting story of the small woman of China. Her name was Gladys Aylward a woman whom I met way back in 1960 and whom I have never forgotten, I don't ever expect to forget her. She went to China, having no background except that of a London parlor maid. She didn't know how to do anything but dust. And she had no mission board, no promises, no money, no nothing. And she found herself trudging down the railroad track, and it turned out that there was a war on. And the soldiers told her that she must walk back. Well. All sorts of things happen before she gets to Vladivostok. When she gets there, she goes into the hotel foyer and was conscious that someone was walking close behind her. It was a girl, dark, plainly dressed, but attractive. The girl drew level with her. Without turning her head, she whispered, in good, if strongly accented English, I must speak to you now. It is important. Follow me. Gladys let the girl precede her and followed her into the corridor. The girl took her arm and steered her into a dark corner. I waited until I was sure the OGPU man had left you, she said. But I don't understand. Who are you? It doesn't matter. What matters is that you are in danger. But I'm a British subject. I've got a passport. Where is it? Here, in my bag. Take it out. Open it. Gladys fumbled in her bag and suddenly remembered the man at the desk. He had put it in his pocket and not returned it. The girl's eyes were fixed on her, reading her thoughts. They still have it? Then you must get it back. Here they need skilled factory workers desperately. If they decide to, they can send you off somewhere in the middle of Russia and you'll never be heard of again. Examine your passport carefully when they return it. Of course. But what am I to do? I can help you. Help me. How can you help me? Listen. Tonight after midnight, be dressed and have your baggage ready. A knock will come on your door, open it, and follow the man outside. Do not speak to him. Simply follow him. You understand? But first, ask them for your passport back. Gladys nodded weakly, then stood in the dim corridor for a few moments after the girl had gone, trying to form a plan of action. She had to get the passport back. She walked back to the desk in the foyer. The OGPU man was sitting on a tilted chair smoking a cigarette. He looked contemptuously up at her. ''My passport,'' said Gladys. ''I would like my passport back.'' He rocked his chair back to floor level, took the cigarette out of his mouth, and blew out smoke. It's still being examined. I will bring it to you this evening. Thank you, said Gladys, and walked quickly away. That night she sat in the cold bedroom after eating her supper. A knock came on the door. She walked across and opened it. It was the OGPU man, grinning, waving the passport tantalizingly in one hand. He put his foot in the door. Instinctively warned, with a quick movement she reached up, snatched the passport from his hand and flicked it over her head into the bedroom. The bitter, sardonic grin on his face frightened her. He forced the door wide open and stepped inside. Don't you dare come in here, she said. Get out! Get out at once! I am coming in, and you can't stop me. His slitted eyes flicked across to the bed and back to her. She was so petrified with astonishment that she allowed him to take three steps toward her. Then she leaped backward, exclaiming unsteadily, God will protect me! God will protect me! The man stopped. He seemed puzzled. For a moment, he stared at her, rooted so dramatically in front of him. Then he started to grin. The grin turned into a laugh, finally into a roar of laughter. Astonished But implacable, Gladys glared at him. Abruptly, his mood changed. He swore at her savagely, cursed her in Russian and English. He lifted his hand threateningly, thought better of it, and stepped backward out of the door, slamming it behind him. Gladys dived at the bolt and thrust it home. The knock was so gentle at midnight that she barely heard it. She hesitated before unlocking the door, then decided she must go through with it. A strange man in a drab mackintosh that's a raincoat, and wilted hat stood outside. It was so dark she could hardly see his face. He motioned to her to come out and held the door open while she bundled through with her suitcases. Then he went on ahead and she followed him along the corridor down the stairs and past the reception desk. The clerk was nodding in his chair by the stove. There was no sign of the OGPU man. The revolving door grated a little as it spun around, and she had difficulty with her cases. Then they were out in the cold night air. She walked quickly after the stranger, stumbling into potholes in the unlit streets. As they hurried through the dark side streets, she had a feeling that they were approaching the sea... Against the night sky, she could see the thin shapes of dockside cranes. Soon they were stumbling over railroad tracks embedded in cobblestones. From the shadow of a pile of packing cases stepped another figure. It was the girl. And with a sigh of thankfulness, Gladys hurried to her. The man stepped back into the shadows. I'm glad you have come, the girl said. What do I do now? Gladys asked anxiously. You see that ship, the girl pointed to the black bulk of a freighter looming beyond the dark sheds and cranes. Yes? It is a Japanese ship. It sails for Japan at dawn. You must be on it. But Japan, I've got no money. Gladys' voice rose into a wail. You'll find the captain of the ship in that small wooden hut over there. You must go and see him, plead with him, tell him you are in great trouble. You must leave on that ship. All right, I'll try. The girl stood there in the darkness, and Gladys did not know how to thank her. What about you? I haven't even thanked you for what you have done. Why have you helped me like this? You needed help. The girl's voice was low and sad. But you... I live here. I shall be all right. But how can I thank you? What can I give you? I have no money. It does not matter. Gladys sensed the hesitation in the girl's voice. There is something. You have, perhaps, clothes? Every garment Gladys possessed she was wearing against the bitter cold. She had nothing except what she wore. But she had to show her gratitude somehow. She whipped off her gloves. Here, take these, and these stockings. She fumbled in her coat pocket and produced a pair she had thrust there in her hurry. They're old and darned, but please have them. The girl took them. Thank you, she said quietly. Good luck. Their hands touched for a moment in the darkness, and then she turned on her heel and walked away. Gladys pushed open the door of the little hut. A naked electric bulb hung from the roof, and a bare wooden table was piled with papers. On the other side of it sat a young Japanese in merchant marine uniform. He looked up gravely as she came in. "'Please,' she said, "'are you the captain of that boat? "'I'm English. I must get on it.' He stared at her impassively. Then he said in excellent English, "'How are you? Please speak slowly. "'What is it you wish?' I want to go to Japan on your ship. Indeed, have you money to pay your fare? No, nothing. His black eyes were unblinking and quite incurious. No valuables of any sort? No, nothing at all. But I must leave here. I must. The captain nodded his head. His face had shown not the slightest sign of emotion. You say you're a British subject. You have a passport. Gladys fished her passport out of her bag, handed it to him. He leafed through it carefully. As she watched him, she had a feeling he'd done this many times. A British subject in trouble. We really cannot have that, can we? Yes, I will take you on my ship. There are some papers you must sign, that is all. If you will come with me, I will find you a cabin. Six hours later, as dawn was coloring the bare red hillsides along the coastline, the Japanese steamship slowly slid out toward the open ocean with Vladivostok a smudge of smoke behind them. At the rail, Gladys looked back at the city she was leaving. She felt as if she had spent a lifetime crossing Russia and Siberia and only through great good fortune had managed to escape. She wondered who the girl was who had helped her, the man who had knocked at her door. She knew that she would never meet them, either of them, again, that they would always remain eternal enigmas in her past. But she wished them luck, for she felt that already she herself had received a fair allowance of that glittering, fateful currency amazing story of the providence of God in the life of a very simple, very uneducated, but very determined tiny little woman named Gladys Aylward. I'm going to continue the story tomorrow.
0: Part three in our series on Gladys Aylward, On a Boat to Japan. Later on, we'll hear about working with Jeannie, about two things that looked like great sorrows, but may have been blessings in disguise. First though, as we're thinking about the memories of Gladys Elwood, let's take a quick break for memories of Elizabeth, about her helping in times of trouble, about a slice of pear. Here's Charleston friend Jean Hamilton to talk about her friend Elizabeth Elliot. I had
2: lost my husband and then less than three years later my my daughter had gotten killed in an accident with her basketball team in college. And my other daughter was in a mess. You know, she just was trying to cover up all her, <laughs> all her mess with anything she'd get her hands on. And I, I, I was visiting Elizabeth and uh, I remember at her dining room, or, I mean at her breakfast nook where they ate her praying for my daughter. Her name is Joni. And she prayed for her right there. And that was very impactful to me. In 2003, I retired. I took a trip up to the New England way, and 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 so I invited myself, and they welcomed me in, though they had been in my home a number of times, and, you know, we have been back and forth a lot. But that was just a, a really sweet time. We got to do a lot of walking together, and I'm not sure if it was that time or not, but I'll never forget her taking a pear that was just ripe, and she cut it and she offered me a part you know a slice of that pear and that was just dear to my heart
0: <laughs> Longtime charleston friend of lars and elizabeth former professor at the college of charleston that was Jean hamilton later on we'll be reminded about how elizabeth didn't want to be treated as a celebrity about the value in common tasks First, though, part four in our ten-part series on Gladys Aylward. Hear about the blessings of being short and about the hard times of missionary life.
1: A Cockney parlor maid who made her way to China in a most incredible story. I'm using the book called The Small Woman, written by Alan Burgess. Three days after leaving Vladivostok they steamed into the small port of Tsuruga on the west coast of Japan. Farther to the south was Kobe, and from there the captain explained she would be able to catch a boat to China. He also informed her that she would have to wait on board while he got in touch with the British consul or his representative. And she goes through various difficulties and troubles uh, before they allowed her to come. But finally she reaches Tianjin, in China, and you Chinese who are listening to me, I'm sure you're laughing your heads off at my pronunciations, but it's the best I can do. I remember, I will never forget, in fact, when I heard Gladys Aylward speak in person in 1960 at Prairie Bible Institute in Alberta, Canada. And among the stories that she told in those riveting two hours was this one, that when she was a child she had two great sorrows. One, that when all of her friends had beautiful golden curls, mine was black. When all my friends were still growing, I stopped. But she said, as I stood on the wharf that day in Tianjin, when I had just arrived in China, I looked around on all the people to whom Jehovah God had sent me and I saw that every single one of them had black hair and every single one of them had stopped growing when I did and I said, Lord God, you know what you're doing. Gladys went to work with a little lady named Jeannie Lawson, 74 years old, a very no-nonsense, matter-of-fact widow. To give you an idea of just how, shall we say, spartan she was, when Gladys came back one day, she reported that she had just witnessed a man being decapitated in the town square Jeannie Lawson's response was of course the man undoubtedly was a criminal and deserved to get the death penalty and of course Gladys was devastated and horrified that she would take such a casual view of such a horrible thing Jeannie Lawson was five feet tall in appearance rather frail and it was a deceptive appearance. Her pure white hair was a phenomenon in China and convinced every peasant in Yangchang that she was not only a foreign devil, but also an evil spirit. This hair terrified them wherever she went, a fact which did not trouble Jeannie Lawson in the slightest. She had arrived in China as a young girl of 21, married another missionary, born her children, seen her firstborn die of the black fever and watched the others grow up and go out into the world. She had outlived her husband by many years. She was Scottish. Her ancestors had fought for centuries against the invading British. And spiritually, she was determined to brandish the word of God in the face of all unbelievers. Not for her, the tame Christianity of the Plains with its Bible classes. Well, Gladys, in those first early weeks, found life a bit harder to bear than she had imagined. Jeannie's gaze was piercing, and she took things very, very casually. After this horrible scene of watching the man decapitated, Jeannie said to Gladys, "'Did you expect things to be the same in China as in England?' "'No, but listen to me, Gladys Aylward. "'You haven't come here to China to alter their laws. "'They'll throw the body down the mountainside "'where it will be eaten by wolves or carrion birds. "'There'll be no Christian burial. "'Understand that,' she added, sparing her nothing. "'And they'll stand the head up on the city wall "'so that everyone can see it.' "'It's so awful, so feudal,' said Gladys. "'Yes, it's feudal. "'Sometimes they won't have an execution for months.' and suddenly there's a batch and the whole wall's lined with heads. You may as well get used to it. There are a lot of things in China you'll have to get used to. We'll try to change these things through the love and wisdom of Jesus Christ by making them understand truth and justice. But we won't do it by running home, blubbering our eyes out. There was a long period of settling in. Jeanie Lawson explained her financial position. She had a private small income, the rent for the house, worked out in British currency at two shillings and fourpence a year. They lived on millet, wheat, and vegetables, which cost only a few pennies. And so they were reasonably secure. But what was the use of security if they could not do the job for which they were both in China? They arrived at a brilliant idea one day as they were walking back up the slope to the West Gate. They passed through the narrow main street and skirted the yamen, or town hall where the Mandarin lived, and all the official business of the city was carried out. And then follows a long story of how these two foreign women managed to secure the trust and even the admiration of the Mandarin, who, of course, was the top official. And so they decided to open an inn for these muleteers. And they opened one which was called the Inn of Eight Happinesses. Some of you may have seen a movie a long time ago called The Inn of the Sixth Happiness, which was Hollywood's version of the Gladys Aylward story. Not very accurate. It was Gladys' job to go out into the streets and drag the muleteers in. And there were times when they had as many as 50 men plus animals. And, of course, genies settled right down immediately when these people began to come and told them Bible stories. One day, Jeannie wanted Gladys to go for a walk with her. Gladys preferred to stay home and study. There was a tirade. Gladys went to visit another mission to let Jeannie cool down. And one of the Chinese people said to her, don't worry, she said, she always cools down after she gets angry. But while Gladys was gone, Jeannie had a fall Gladys was able to get back in time to care for her for a short time, but Jeannie died. Gladys then became the official foot inspector and then insisted that prisoners must have work to do. These were things that she persuaded the Mandarin to consider. Of course, young girls, baby girls, had their feet bound So adult Chinese women, unless they were very poor or were prostitutes, had very deformed, tiny feet. And Gladys saw this as a very cruel system and so began to persuade the Mandarin that this had to go. Then she also persuaded him that prisoners ought to have work to do so that they wouldn't despair. And so they introduced looms, miller's wheels, and they stopped riots which had been taken for granted the convicts were even taken to hear the preaching of the gospel at the inn of eight happinesses and there were some laws passed which forbade the beating of wives that was a whole new direction in china as well and they were no longer allowed to sell or to kill their wives another drastic change. The child dealers, who were buying children for two dollars a piece, were reprimanded. Gladys knew, of course, that you cannot immediately protest to a Mandarin, no matter how serious your complaint is. Courtesies came first. She bowed low before the imperious, scarlet robed figure, obeying the ancient ritual of the small official addressing the high and mighty. "'Mandarin, are you well?' she asked. "'Yes, I am well. You are well?' "'Yes, I am well. Have you eaten your food?' "'Yes, I have eaten my food. Have you eaten your food?' "'Thank you. Yes. Mandarin, are your old relations well?' "'Yes, my old ones are very well.'" This went on for about a minute, and then the courtesies over, she handed him the slip of paper containing her report. It was a very brief report, because in those early days, before she learned to write in Chinese, she had to get someone to write the Chinese characters for her. Her reports, in fact, were masterpieces of simplicity. This one read, Gladys Aylward has been to the Chao Tsung. Gladys Aylward has come back from Chao Tsung. The names of the district or village might alter with each trip, but her written reports did not. All the details of her work she gave him verbally. A smile creased the Mandarin's mouth as he took the paper. Seeing him thus in his bright, scarlet robes with high collar, scarlet cap, and wide, sweeping sleeves, she always took some seconds to get over her feeling of awe. "'You have things to tell me,' he said. Gladys answered, "'What do you do with dealers in children?' The dark, thin eyebrows lifted slightly. "'I do not understand you. "'A few yards away from this yamen, "'a woman tried to sell me a child for two dollars. "'What do you do about that?' Gladys intuitively knew that her question worried him. He walked to the end of the chamber and back before replying. Then he said, you do not do anything. But I don't understand, said Gladys. It's wrong. If she is indeed a child dealer, she belongs to a gang of wicked and desperate people. If you interfere with them, they commit horrible crimes. It's better that you forget all about it. It has nothing to do with you. I'm going to continue the story tomorrow.
0: Part four of our series on missionary Gladys Aylward. It's a 10-part series, so stay with us for the next few weeks. Our guest is Mike Cantrell. He and his wife and daughter live overseas and serve on projects throughout Europe, Africa, and in the U.S. As the technical media director, Mike manages digital files for the Foundation podcast, YouTube channel, and the website.
3: My wife translated Passion and Purity into Russian, and uh, through that process, we came to know Elizabeth and Lars. Our first meeting with them was in Finland after they had just finished a visit to Norway. And when we met them, Olga and I immediately began to do what surely many others have done when meeting Elizabeth in person. We began to gush. (laughs) We said something like, oh, you've meant so much to us, and we love your work, and things like that. We were about a sentence or two into that gushing praise, and they said, don't do that. Well, that stopped us in our tracks. In her talks, Elizabeth very often mentioned that she, in addition to her public work, was also cooking meals, doing laundry, going shopping, and all the other things that are parts of a normal daily life. The Lord called her to write books, to give talks, answer letters, and for her These activities had no more value in God's eyes than what we consider to be normal or boring daily responsibilities. Elizabeth was aware of and cautious about the culture of Christian celebrity. She often addressed it head-on, and I, I really appreciate her message that every action we take, particularly those of everyday life, can be an act of discipleship and ministry dedicated to the Lord for His glory.
0: Mike Cantrell. Thanks, Mike. I'm reminded of one of Elizabeth's quotes. The will of God is not something you add to your life. It's a course you choose. You either line yourself up with the Son of God, or you capitulate to the principle which governs the rest of the world. Well, thanks for letting us come into your home office along with you as you took a walk wherever we found you. On behalf of the Elizabeth Elliot Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you to check out elizabethelliot.org. More talks, devotionals, videos, and more. elizabethelliot.org. And until next time, may God remind you every day, you're loved with an everlasting love. And underneath are those Everlasting Arms.